Hey, quick break to talk about our sponsor today. We're talking about HubSpot and their new AI-powered service hub. Okay, so what is service hub? Basically, every customer today wants to be talked to in a personalized way. And before, that required tons of human agents. But now, with AI, you could do that in a personalized way with fewer humans involved. And so you don't have to scale up your team in order to deliver personalized chat and service. So check out HubSpot's new service hub to use their AI tools to give better support to your customers. That's what they want and that's what they deserve. So visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn how this all new solution can help you deliver customer service with AI to your customers. We are a platform for remote work. Our mission is to create great work from home jobs powered by AI. A lot of companies and individuals use us to convert audio to text. There's a lot of video all over the web from YouTube to Netflix, and it all needs to be captioned and subtitled. And so we serve all of those needs for everybody from the one guy with a podcast to large media companies like CNN. The breaking news uh, coming into CNN now. On the other side of our business, we have freelancers who work at home and can earn money from their pajamas at any time. And we give them the ability to choose the work they do. When they do it, they can make money to help lead the lifestyle they want. A lot of them are home with children or family obligations, and we're able to fill the cracks in their day in a way they can't otherwise do. We have 150 employees, more than half are engineers. We've raised $31 million. There we disclosed for the first time that our last valuation was $206 million. There are so many people around the world that would love to work remotely but can't. They don't have opportunity in their small town or country. I just think that there's going to be a huge change in our lifetimes where by the time I'm dead, I think there will be a billion people who work remotely. Five million is not enough. Ten million. Fifteen million. Twenty million dollars. Hundred million dollars. Half a billion. Eight hundred fifty million dollars. One or two people in a bedroom actually the threats to these like giant multi-billion-dollar companies because you have creativity and you have nothing to lose. Add another zero to that price, buddy. Add two more zeros. First million. Every week we sit down with self-made millionaires and ask them, "How did you do it?" I didn't start a podcast. I started my own personal business school, and the teachers are the successful entrepreneurs behind the biggest brands and businesses that you find today. I wanted to know the real stories with all the details, like how did you get your first hundred customers? What did it feel like when shit hit the fan? I ask them, how do you spend your money now that you're rich? And what would you do if you were starting over from scratch again today? If you're like me and you want to own your own business instead of living a nine to five job, this is the podcast for you. The Hustle presents My First Million. Hey, my name is Jason Chicola. company is, is Rev.com. We are a uh, platform for remote work. For customers, we convert audio to text. And uh, our mission is to create great work-from-home jobs powered by AI. So we're a two-setter marketplace. I use you guys. Yeah, wonderful. I, I transcribed our podcast using Rev. Yeah, so a lot of companies and individuals use us to convert audio to text. Podcasters use us a lot. People in media use us a ton. Uh, but so do a lot of other industries, whether it's e-learning websites that need videos captioned, whether it's uh, market research firms that have a, a focus group to transcribe. There are user research teams that, that transcribe audio. Uh, there's a lot of video all over the web from YouTube to Netflix, and it all needs to be captioned and subtitled. And so we serve all of those needs for everybody from uh, the one guy with a podcast to you know large media companies like CNN, uh, who use us all the time for audio and video. 
And then on the other side of our business, we have freelancers who work at home and can earn money from their pajamas at any time. They work flexibly. They can work as much or as little as they want. And we give them the ability to choose the work they do when they do it. And uh, they can make money to kind of help lead the lifestyle they want. A lot of them are home with children or family obligations, and we're able to fill the cracks in their day and, and keep them busy, help them make money um, in a way they can't otherwise do. And brag a little bit how far you guys have come. Uh, so you started the company how, how many years ago? Yeah, I started the company uh, It's almost 10 years, nine and a half years ago. Um, we have, if I mention some of our publicly available metrics, uh you can mention the private ones too. It's cool. Uh, there you go. <laughs> we have 50,000 people who work on the platform uh, each month. Uh, we've raised $31 million. We were on the Forbes AI list a few months ago, and it said in there, there we disclosed for the first time that our last valuation was $206 million. We have 150 employees, more than half are engineers. We have... How'd you get to $206 million? Usually the valuation's around numbers. Why Why 206? I think in that case... Is I it think, a multiple of, of a number? Is that how you end up at 06? You know, it, it, it's always a, a peculiar process. I, th- <laughs> I mean, I think it was a, a small round, and I think in that case we, we agreed to the uh, round size first. This is the pre pre money, and then that got added on. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Gotcha. <laughs> About 2014, we were having trouble hiring engineers, as everybody does, because it's a competitive market, and um, everybody in the Bay Area is fishing in the same pond. I started talking to advisors and and um, you know board members, and one of my board members uh, was involved in in a company that had a big office in Seattle and also one in San Francisco, and he made the point. You know, SF's not the only place to hire engineers. So I thought, um, well, you know, that's a good point. Um, let me let me think a little bit better about this and look around at the world. And I realized that, um, you know, the Bay Area, uh, because of the lack of construction and the, you know, the housing costs and the various way the labor market and the uh, real estate market works here, I thought it would be, um, you know, a tough place to be, uh, you know, only based here, right? That the, the Bay Area has the best of a lot of things, but I felt that it would be good to have uh, another office in, in a city with a lower cost of living. Did a bunch of looking around for a lot of reasons, chose Austin, and uh, we now have offices in both places, and we're hiring a lot in both offices. We think both markets are great for different reasons, and we have some people that go back and forth between the two. I think it's really hard to retain people for more than 10 years if you're only in the Bay Area. I think there's a lot of examples of companies that that had a really strong start, and then a lot of their people left after they vested, and they ended up, you know, without maybe as much of the uh, of the core original people as, as they would have wanted. I know I saw some interview once where Mark Zuckerberg said, "If he could go back in time, he would have done Facebook in Boston." Mm-hmm. I don't know if he meant it, but he said it, which is a big thing to say. Um, for a guy like that, and uh, I was reading one book. I think it was Chaos Monkeys. It talked about Facebook, and the guy said that when he got to Facebook, he met somebody who was employed number 29 at Facebook and that he or she was the only person of, of, of the first 30 other than Zuckerberg that was still there. Right. Right. And so I can imagine if that's assuming these facts are true, he must have been kind of bummed that the first <laughs> His 20, whole crew is gone. 28 people he got, they, I mean, their, their case, they made obscene amounts of money, they did great, and they uh, went on to other things. Um, it's got to be hard to keep innovating the way you want to when 
you lose talent like that. And what I see is that uh, your Bay Area housing costs create this pressure on people to jump ship pretty fast. And it's a rational economic strategy to kind of hop around company to company, um, whether you go to a big company and get paid a lot of cash or you go to a startup and you get some options that may be worth a lot of money. You do that two or three times and, and one of them strikes gold and, you know, and it works out. And um, that's probably good for the individual, not great for the company if the company has long-term aspirations to do big things because Google's a very impressive company, obviously. They, they, they produce this incredible search engine that is you know, maybe the best economic asset of all time. But what I find almost more impressive is that a company like Amazon at you know, 25 years old can launch something totally new like a convenience store and see it kind of work. Yep. Um, and you know, to me, what's really impressive is innovation that can happen in, in the second and third decade. And I think to do that, you need, to, you need a different approach to culture and you need to try to build um, a company where people don't um, burn out and where they, they stay energized and excited about the next chapter uh, and building great new stuff. And um, I, th- I think that having um, offices in two places uh, has helped us to do that, to create that kind of more sustainable culture. Right. Um, so, so right now, as we approach our second decade, um, our best days are definitely yet to come. I mean, we're, we're right now building some things with artificial intelligence that I couldn't have dreamed of three or four years ago. So we're going to be, be producing our best products for sure in our second decade. And you guys, you know, this is kind of an interesting one, right? Because um, the service you provide is really simple, which is awesome because uh, I love simplicity in general, but B, it's just easy for, for customers and employees even to, to grok. What are we trying to do here? Uh, what is the service for? And so um, where you guys are transcribing audio to text and you're doing it really well, you're doing it efficiently. Um, companies like Google are releasing AI. I feel like every year that's getting closer and closer to being able to do real time captions. Like I was watching a live streamed video and the captions were so good uh, and there was live. Is it only these, these are only being done, I guess, through ML. And, um, and so like that's an existential threat, right? Where you guys are employing 50,000 people right now, which is awesome. And people are making money in their pajamas at home. Um, how does the sort of, obviously you guys are using AI to assist humans, but like, the AI is coming to be able to do this really, really well. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's one of our biggest strategic questions. And I'll tell you our view on that and other people have a different view. Um, the, the people who want to pay, the people who care about quality um, need the human uh, in the loop to make it accurate. And, and let me give you some so, some examples here. Um, let's just say, I mean, like you, you have a podcast, you actually have a lot of listeners, right? But you're, you're kind of a small business. There are plenty of podcasts that are sm- smaller than you. And then there's This American Life, mm-hmm. right? So for the guy in his garage with no budget, he's probably perfectly okay to use an automated transcript from Google, or we actually have a, a service for that. Um, you can get rev automated transcript that's, that's more accurate than Google's. And the automated version is probably good enough for the small guy if he doesn't need it perfect. Plus, podcasts tend to be recorded with good audio because we're sitting here with these great microphones and in a good room and so forth. This American Life wants it right. They don't want any mistakes. And even if the AI is a lot better than today, it still takes a human to make it near perfect. Mm-hmm. And when we go out to the market, whether it's uh, our customers that want captions for you know Netflix or whether it's um, a market research firm that has a focus group, they want things done accurately. They don't want them full of mistakes. Um, they want a transcript or caption file to go to a bunch of people and it can't be wrong. 
And um, as good as the AI is, it still makes a lot of mistakes, like a lot. Mm -hmm. And the AI, um, we use the term AI, which is really a misnomer. It's probably more accurate to call it machine learning because the software we have that converts audio to text, it's not intelligent in the way that you know, my three-year-old or my dog, frankly, is intelligent. It's not doing inferring and reasoning. It's doing strict pattern recognition using brute force. And so um, it makes all kinds of mistakes that a human just wouldn't make. Right. Particularly a human that uh, knows our culture. So if you have, so understanding, uh, if I'm, if I'm talking to you and I know you a little bit, or I know people like you or your style, I can probably guess what you're going to say next based upon the thread of the argument. And, this kind of software can't can't do can't do those things. I think um, the way we look at the market is uh, the AI is definitely going to shrink the market in certain areas because there will be some use cases where somebody says, "Hey, I was paying you know a dollar, let's say, for a human to do it, and I could have an AI do it for a lot less. I'll do that." But what we also see even more so is that as we've rolled out um, a cheaper AI service, our volumes have grown dramatically. Because what's happening is people are coming to us and saying, I have a whole back catalog of content that wasn't worthwhile for me. It wasn't wasn't important enough to pay a human to do it. But at your lower AI price, I'll do all of it. Right. And so, um, you know, we're looking around and saying, well, how much audio and video is really out there? So let's just take, let's just think about TV, TV for a minute. You know, when I was a kid, I had a black and white TV in my bedroom. I'm 41, so I'm not that old. But it had like two knobs, the UHF and the VHF knob. And so you could count. It only had like maximum 40 stations of which probably like only a dozen had actually had actual content on it. Now with YouTube, I have like half a million decent stations I can choose from, right? So in my lifetime, it went from like 12 stations (laughs) to like 500,000. Right. And not every station there needs closed captions, but all the big ones want it. And even the medium ones want it too because it's better for the better for the audience. It's better for SEO. It's better for foreign, um, you know, f- uh, foreign visitors or people with English second language. If it was good and cheap, you would want it. And what you guys are doing is making it good, good and cheap. And cheap. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, the amount of audio and video that is of high quality is growing exponentially. Right. And so what AI does is it makes things more affordable and we're seeing massive market expansion. The other example I would say is, look, how big was the taxi market in SF, you know, circa 10 years, 10 years ago, right? It's a, it's a lot bigger now. Right. Or the market for personal transport is so much bigger, even though the prices have gotten lower. How can that be? Well, now every, you know, millennial who's thinking of going to the bar is probably going to use an Uber pool and pay like seven bucks. Whereas before th- there was no option, you know, the taxes weren't available. And if they were available, right. they would have cost three times that. So, um, the efficiency, people used to say this about Uber. They said, well, how, you know, how big could this be? Is this overvalued? Well, even if it took a hundred percent of the taxi market, it wouldn't live up to this. And what turned out was in cities like San Francisco, they, that same year, I remember this when, when I read this argument, that same year, they three X'd the total size of the San Francisco taxi market themselves. I remember some, somebody telling me, some VC telling me that same thing. Right. And it, it's, it, and we see the same type of dynamic. How much audio and video is out there? It, it's limitless, right? Um, and how many times were you in a meeting where somebody wanted to know what was said, right? right. All right, it's 2020, new year. It's going to be a big year. And you know we had to come in with some new awesome partners. So for January, we are partnering up with Microsoft and My First Million. That's right. This episode is brought to you by Microsoft because whether you're just starting out or you're well on your way to your first million, 
Microsoft Teams can help your team hit the ground running with must-have features like real-time chat, editing, and video calling, all in one easy-to-use platform. Teams is a no-brainer at a price you can afford. Yep, there is a free version of Teams, as in it costs $0. See for yourself at aka.ms slash the hustle. Again, that's aka.ms slash the hustle to check out Teams, brought to you by Microsoft. I love it. Microsoft, that is a trillion dollar company, right? We're talking about my first million. They're, they're on my first trillion. So that's goals for everybody. They got there because they build epic products. Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint. These are products that stand the test of time. And now they've come out with Teams to help Teams chat, communicate, and work together. And I think it's awesome. All right, great. Let's get back to this episode. The amount of audio and video that matters is limitless. So um, AI is a breakthrough technology that is delivering higher value at a lower cost. And so it's going to expand the market. And you know, the, there's a lot of headlines that say robots are coming for the jobs. People have these sort of dystopian notions of people think of like Terminator and, and when's the robots going to going to come and kill us all. Um, that's not what we see, right? I, I mean, I think it's that, that that sells movie tickets. But what we see is that when we go to our freelancers and we give them software that does the most tedious parts of their job better, they think it's great because those aren't the parts they enjoy, right? They want to do the parts that require them to think and, and, and use judgment. So, um, I mean, if you look across, uh, I, I'm an economics geek. If you look at the history uh, of industry, what I see is that as uh, as factories bring in more technology, they they produce more stuff with fewer people per per widget, and they require more skilled people. Right now, if you talk, you know, you read the big challenge for factory owners is they need workers that can deal with robots, right? <laughs> right, and, and because like, well, it, it's kind of hard to work with a robot compared to right. the they guy need teenagers, basically. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe, <laughs> yeah, may, maybe. So, so um, let me ask you: When you guys, before you guys built software for your transcribers, um, what would the cost be if there was no software per? Let's call it minute. And then what is your average cost now? So like that's the efficiency gain, right? Through through adding the the sort of the machine learning components where you you help their workflow, you speed them up, you get you take away the tedious parts. Yeah. Um I'll answer your question, but I'll I'll kinda go one step back uh, before then. You know, um we we intentionally chose an industry that we thought was very large, but that hadn't received any real innovation ever, frankly. And you know, once in a while, I'll be reading some book about something that happened 200 or 2,000 years ago, and it talks about scribes, you know, tra- transcribing what was said <laughs> by, by, by a president or king or a general. So as long as people could talk and write, people have been transcribing. And, um, you know, when I was uh, in high school, I remember... One of my uh, my biology teacher had a wife who his wife would do medical transcription and she would get cassettes mailed to her and she would sit there and type them out on a word processor or something and that w- that was the job and so it was it was opening the mail and taking the cassette and putting it in and playing it and that was state of the art when I was in tenth grade circa 90, 1994. <laughs> and so then when I started this you know, nine years ago state of the art um, was you get emailed a audio file and you import it to some uh, software that's designed to play audio um, for transcriptionists that typically 
you could often control it by a physical foot pedal that you plug into your USB port. So people have tried to make it more efficient. So the software is made for transcriptionists. And someone that was good would have a physical foot pedal. So that way they could have a third hand. And the reason for that foot pedal is it would it would control things like play or, play or pause or go back five seconds. Um, so people had done some basic things to try to get speed. Uh, but the technology wasn't very good. It really wasn't. It was desktop software. If you looked at it, you just, with your kind of Bay Area product lens, you'd say not, not nice software. And um, they were typically typing into Microsoft Word. And that's how we started. Um, we started doing the same thing everybody else did. But we knew we were going to build software to do everything that it could do to help in the whole process. And there's a lot of pieces to that. It took us a couple years, but we built software to help people do the job, which is to listen to audio and transcribe it. And it was full of little productivity hacks in the software. So for example, um, they would have, uh, the person would have shortcuts for things like, um, for a very common word they might see a lot, they might have a little shorthand for it. So instead of writing the word because, B-E-C-A-U-S-E, they would type B-C space and it didn't form because. And there's like 10 other different types of little hacks that's in the software that each one is not that big of a deal, but when you put them all together, it makes somebody faster. And so what, and, and we had teams of people that would, um, we would watch people work almost like with a stopwatch and figure out when they're getting tripped up and say, let's go fix that part right, of it. We got to unblock this. Yeah. Cause, cause we understood that the faster they could work, the better for everybody. They're happier. Customers happier. They make more money per, you know, hour of their effort. Everybody wins. And, you know, we put that software through, you know, dozens and dozens of versions and it, and we believe it's, um, the best out there. And, um, so we probably, as best we can tell, uh, cut the time to do a job or rather double productivity, uh, cut the time, cut the time to do a job in half or double productivity, um, on what the norm was in the industry. And that was before we brought AI to bear. Right. Um, and so we've been bringing AI into the picture over the last year. I think we're still, you know, inning one of this journey and the AI is not always helpful because with AI, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, the old saying, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken. Yep. Bleep. Bleep. And if if I record here with you, with these microphones, the AI will do a great job, whereas most people aren't doing that, right? A lot of it's in a conference room with an iPhone, Doritos bag next to the mic. Right. Fan on. Fan on. <laughs> and a guy with a cough. <laughs> yeah. They're not thinking about it. Oh, and then maybe somebody's got uh, a foreign accent because they, you know, recent right. immigrant, which is which can be harder for certain people to discern the words. And then somebody like me gets excited and interrupts too much. <laughs> and so you, you have a perfect storm of, of like, that's, that's reality. Right. Right. So there's like perfect conditions and then there's reality and we get both. Right. It's like self-driving cars in a parking lot versus, you know, in a city when it's raining. Type that's thing. right. Tahoe in the snow with the fog, right. you know, in winter. Uh, and I, and I, I, and I see conditions. So, uh, so the AI, Today, what what I mean by AI, we have proprietary technology that converts audio to text, and um, we run it. We run all of our audio through it, and we find that in some cases the AI can do a really good job, and we give it to the human being, and they love it. And in other cases, the AI can do a good job, and so we kind of throw away the transcript, right? And we and they take from scratch. So let me ask you a question: 
you started this business when you were, um, or you, you left your job to start this business, but your job was somewhat related, right? You were at, I think, Odesk, which has been rebranded or acquired or whatever to, to be Upwork. And um, so did you see this opportunity while you were there that, hey, man, a lot of these jobs are transcription jobs. What if we you know just did that really well? You know, How did this come about? What's the origin story uh, from, take us from you're a guy with a job to you start this company? What happened? Sure. Um, there was a step in another company uh, in between, not, not, not a startup, I'll, I'll tell you the story. So uh, I, I joined um, a startup that was called Odesk. It's now called Upwork, and the company went public in late 2018. So it was doing pretty well. Um, I joined this company in 2004 when it was super tiny. And what was your job title then? Um, the title, I'll tell you the title and what I actually did. The title was director of marketing and sales. Um, in reality, I did a lot of product management. I did online marketing. I did a little selling before we automated our sales process. I did fundraising. I, I helped the founder with the series A and series B, uh, financing. I, I kind of got, I did some operations work. I did everything to, to be done except for, I never wrote software. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a great, um, founder like experience. Uh, I was an early employee, um, not quite a founder, but I did a lot of different things. Uh, and I joined the company, uh, early on. I joined the company before they could pay me. So I worked for free for a few months with the founder before, um, he could finally, why'd you do that? Cause I believed he was building something really important. And, and it, I, oh, and I'll tell you frankly, um, a personal motivation. Um, and there's a little bit of, so one of the biggest questions for somebody who wants to join an early stage startup is how do you negotiate with the founder, particularly for equity, which mm-hmm. is the thing that matters most in the early stage company. And um, I I saved a little bit of money in my uh, previous job. I was willing and happy to work for a few months for free. And give people a sense of your age at the time. Are you you're not a kid out of college? Okay, so a couple 20, years 20, out of 25 college. 25 maybe? Yeah, 24, 25. Um, and I remember calling on one of my mentors who's a venture capitalist for advice saying, I want to go work with this founder. We have tremendous chemistry. Um, I, I think the world of him and he, and he respects me and there's the things that he's good at are different than what I'm good at. And I think together we could um, really do a great job building, building this business. And the question was, how do I uh, frankly negotiate with him for what equity stake I'd be working for because that, that, that was the, that was a, one of the main attractions for joining a company that was so early. They had, they had no funding, right. had no money to bank. They couldn't pay me. Nobody had ever heard of them. They had like four <laughs> customers. Um, but it was a big idea and I loved the idea. And the advice I got from this mentor was, and I'll never forget this advice. It was great advice. It was, um, look right now the information is very asymmetric. You don't know. He doesn't know what you're worth. And you don't know how to sell that to him, how to, how to show him that. So he said, just uh, work for a little while, demonstrate value, and he'll realize that he wouldn't want to do this without you. Mm. And um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people um, want to spend a lot. I mean, I think there's a general point here about negotiation. A lot of people want to spend a lot of time um, to use a different phrase, you know, dividing a, a pie that may, that may never get baked. And sometimes you want to start baking the pie and figuring out a little later how to divvy it up. So what we did is we agreed. We said, we'll work together for, we picked some time period. It might have been three months. And say three months, we're going to sit down 
and try to figure this out. And during the three months, we worked together as if we were married, um, meaning I was 100% dedicated to making him and the company successful. And we you know, put in place um, online marketing programs with Google, and we uh, did a lot of product work to get customers coming off the website, and we started hiring, hiring people for roles that we needed, and we went, did some fundraising, and we were having some early, early traction in that process. And when we sat down to... Um, to basically discuss and, and, and negotiate on the talk, have the big talk that we, <laughs> we build up to. Uh, amazingly, we walked in each thinking each with the same number in our heads. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, and what do you chalk that up to? You were too low. He's too generous. How do you, how do you, you know, square that, that circle? Why does that happen? You both had an accurate view of what this was worth. You know, I, I think that, um, there's this phrase in negotiation, like, do you go for the last dollar? Um, and I think it depends on life about what kind of relationship you want with the person down the road. And I think we each try to come up with something that we thought would be fair, fair to the other person, but attractive, but, 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 but mutually attractive. Right. And we had worked together enough that, you know, I was aware of how awesome the company's potential was. He, he had an idea of what I could do. And, um, if we tried to have that conversation too early, too early, it wouldn't have gone well. Right. Um, and you know, he could, he, you know, he knew that I took a leap of faith, uh, to work for no, for no pay for several months, um, because I believed in him and the business and, um, and did you, and it worked out. did you signal even at the beginning? Cause I've had a similar experience where, uh, I had a company, a guy literally was like, I want to work on this with you guys. I'll work for free. I'll, you know, sleep on the couch and we'll figure it out in three, six months. Don't worry. We'll, I'll show you first. And, uh, one ch- challenge we ran into and I love the guy, Sam, you know, big, big shout out to Sam Soley. Um, you know, we ran into was when we, when it came time for the talk, we didn't know, where the other person's expectations were at all. We had like beat around the bush so completely that when it came up and he was like, well, I, you know, basically want to be an equal partner. And we were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we didn't even think that's the discussion we're trying to have. We thought it was between X and Y. Right. And, um, that set off a pretty bad tone. So I'm curious, um, just to sort of compare personal experiences. It might just be that every experience is different, but did you do a better job maybe of, setting the tone or, or benchmarking in some way at the beginning? Uh, or did you just happen to have a better outcome than we did? Um, so it's been uh, 16 years, so details are a little, <laughs> little hazy. But um, I think we did have some rough discussions over maybe not quite ranges, but but some benchmarks. I mean, I was um, I had the good fortune to you – know, I was coming out of a job at a VC firm where I was a very junior person, but I had a lot of data on what – people earned at startups and what they had in various roles. And we probably had a little bit of maybe some bookends on the conversation before going into it, I think. Um, gotcha. And, and, and I mean, certainly, yeah, that, that, that's a very, it's a very delicate, um, that's a very delicate question. But but I do think that it's important to always try to have some broad meeting of the minds before you go into something. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's, and there's no easy way to do that. So, so one question I get a lot as I do this podcast is people come to me for career advice and I'm like, you know, look, uh, a, you don't want advice. Uh, and B, you got to look at your own situation. But one question I often get is, should I, you know, go down this path, start my own company, go down this path, work for a big company. And the, the other one that's most interesting because it's, you know, I would say at least known to people, um, is what it's like to do what you did. Join early at a company that 
that might make it big. And the question I get a lot is around, um, what are, what are my, what, what should my expectations be? So for example, you joined, uh, Odesk, which became Upwork and ultimately is, you know, public company. So that's the, that's the win. You know, financial win is what, uh, that, that startup actually made it through the gauntlet of things that startups normally could, could fail in. And, um, Give people a sense if they're that, you know, that person who's 24 years old and weighing their options. They don't quite have a business idea they love and want to start. They, they kind of know they don't want to be at a big company and they're trying to figure out, okay, at a big company, it's very clear what I'm going to make. And at this startup, I kind of don't know how to think about these options. And, you know, if a company makes it all the way like you did, where does that set you up financially? How, how would you sort of inform somebody who's trying to make a, who's trying to do a sort of a, a rational decision financially between those two options? How would you talk, th- talk, talk to people about that? So, um, it's a really important question. Obviously, there's no, there's no like the definitive answer to anything, and I, I could you know give an answer, and then somebody could say, well, I, I did the other path, and I was really successful, so you're wrong. But um, you, you framed it as big company versus join a founder in a startup, and I want to add that there's a lot of room range in between, a lot of range in between that. Yeah. Okay, and um, I would think that for most people who let's say somebody says I want to be an entrepreneur or co-founder one day. If if they haven't yet, I would probably advise them to get involved in a high growth startup first, um, because you're going to learn a lot really fast. Now, if you start the company, great. Uh, if you have some incredible passion for a problem, your father had a certain illness, and there's a company that's going to solve that illness, and you have a dying desire to solve it, and you have skills to do so, then go do it. But what I find is. A lot of people want to do a startup for kind of lifestyle reasons. Like they want to be an entrepreneur. They want that lifestyle and they're just hungry for it. And um, most people who haven't been in the game for a while probably don't have the background to be able to evaluate a new idea with high confidence that they're going to get it right. It's a a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why... Um, if you go, if you look at a startup that has raised venture capital from some decent venture capital firms, is growing quickly, is innovating a lot, um, and you can join in a capacity where you're building and growing something, ultimately hiring people, um, you're going to learn a lot of skills, and along the way, you'll get exposed to a lot, a lot of different markets and categories, and start to develop a better um, view over over what a good opportunity and company might be for you. Because there are a lot of people that jump from startup to startup, a lot of little startups that don't go anywhere. And they probably have a lot of fun and maybe they end up happy in the end. But I think probably they went in hoping for um, either a financial outcome or some kind of legacy. And if you jump between a bunch of companies that don't go anywhere, you don't get it. Um, I think that if you find that high growth uh, venture back company and do at least a couple year stint at um, you, depending on what, what sort of function you're into, you, you know, you want to get in a position where you get exposed um, to multiple functions. So, so you have some exposure to the business side of things. Um, product is often a good in, back, uh, a good area because it cuts across a lot of departments, but you can get, you can get that from a lot of different uh, fields. I, I think most people are better off in the high growth startup as kind of a bridge or, or is it, is it is maybe a step right. before breaking out of their own? That's just doing doing the the, the the numbers and math. I think most people are better off that way. Um, you know, in my personal journey, um, I had spent the two years before 
joining up work at a venture capital firm where my job was to evaluate startups. I had the good fortune to, to be able to see probably hundreds of companies from the inside and understand how to compare things, um, how to benchmark companies. And also, I had the opportunity to learn a lot and talk to a lot of people about um, how does a company build enduring advantages, what people these days would call a moat and defensibility. And um, I got a lot of great advice from that and a bunch of you know very wise uh, VC partners and entrepreneurs. And um, if I oversimplify that story, while well, there's a lot of ways to build defensibility, I think network effects is a really powerful one. Right. And it was very clear from the first minute that if, if Upwork had any level of traction, it would have great network effects and it would be very difficult to rebuild that. And um, that's proven to be the case. Right. So, so uh, you know, and, I, I went in knowing that if it worked, it would really work. Right. And when you, uh, you said, you know, you, were, you had that experience and then you did something in between and then you decided to start Rev. Uh, I was at Upwork for about three years. Um, for a lot of reasons, uh, I decided to leave, uh, you know, the, the company. Um, the CEO changed a couple times and uh, they put me in a role that I didn't think was the right role for me. So I decided, you know, let me go off on my own, get a job where I can um, save some money and start a company on my own terms um, and be able to call the shots in a way that I hadn't been uh, at Upwork. And that's, that's what I did. Uh, I had a friend who worked at a private equity fund, and he was nice enough to introduce me, and I was able to get a job. And um, it wasn't relevant to tech directly the work, but I learned a lot and, and was able to save a little mo- bit of money so that when I was ready to start a company uh, on my own for the first time, uh, I could do it with the flexibility of uh, not needing to raise investor capital day one. Mm-hmm. And when I started thinking about um, what company I wanted, I wanted to start, I got to thinking about um, what I learned from Upwork, which is that there are so many people around the world that um, would love to work remotely but can't. They don't have opportunity in their small town or country. And I just think that um, there's going to be a huge change in my lifetime, in our lifetimes, where by the time I'm dead, I think there'll be a billion people who work remotely. Um, up from a much smaller number today. And that takes some time because the technology has to mature, the bandwidth has to get better, industries and businesses have to change so that work that's done today in a cubicle farm gets spread across people's homes through software. And a lot has to happen for that transition to happen. And so I thought, um, why wouldn't Rev be the company? Why wouldn't I start a company to accelerate that, to bring that forward, to give opportunity to people? And I was able to... You know, more or less dissect what did I think were the um, Achilles heels in Upwork's business model and build a different business model that we don't compete with Upwork in any meaningful way, but there's two things that are different about, about Rev than Upwork. For the customer, we guarantee quality because we, we only do one thing. We can audio to text. And because Upwork does everything under the sun, they can't possibly guarantee quality right. on infinite range of services. Yeah, you pick, a, you pick an Upworker you hope that that Upworker is going to deliver what you want. With Rev, Rev is telling you you're going to get what you want. That's right. A different way, that's right. A different way to phrase that is that um, on Upwork, you hire a person and roll the dice. On Rev, you pay for a service, and we stand behind it. Mm-hmm. So it's a different thing. It's, it's staffing yep. versus a service. Um, and then the other side of our business is the freelancer. So if you work on Upwork or Fiverr or a platform like that, you spend a lot of time applying for jobs. The median case of somebody in these platforms is create an account, apply a bunch of jobs, don't find work, <laughs> right? Right. And 
even the success, successful ones are applying for a lot of jobs that they don't get. So that's time they're spending. They're not getting paid for. And applying for jobs means putting yourself out there emotionally, getting excited about something. It, it's doing a sales pitch. And most people don't like having the door slammed in their face, getting turned down. And you have to get turned down a lot to get a job, which is, for most people, not fun. It's time. So what we felt is if we had a, a, a platform that would provide one kind of service and we standardized it, so we knew we would only accept jobs of a given category. In our case, it's audio files we can transcribe that are in English to start. Then what we could do is we could vet a workforce. So we don't let anybody do it, but we let anybody apply. And if people pass our tests and meet our criteria, we have a tiered workforce where there's different levels in our workforce. If you're in the top level of the workforce, we let you do any job, anytime. Right. And so those people spend no time applying for jobs, right? They can work as much or as little as they want, right? And that's by design. So, so, so the, we had these key differences of I wanted to have guaranteed experience with the customer and I wanted somebody with, with, with the right skills to be able to work as much or as little as they want never have to sell themselves, never have to have to bid on a job, never have a race to the bottom of saying, that guy will do it for a dollar, I'll do it for 98 cents. Right. Never have any of those things. Wake uh, up and you have your cue. That's right. That, that was the concept. And then the question was simply, well, what would they be doing? What kind of work? <laughs> and we considered every kind of work under the sun. We looked at, should they do software development? Should they do graphic design? We, we looked at what are all the common job types that people do across the internet? And mm-hmm. we studied what was out there. And we quickly rejected any job that was pretty subjective. Yep. Um, Design can't work. Yeah. So like, hey, restaurant needs a logo for its website, but you think it's pretty. I think it's ugly or vice versa. We'll never agree on that. Uh, Whereas we've chosen categories that are pretty objective. Now, there's always a little subjectivity, but what we do is pretty subjective. You give me a podcast, we give you back the words to it. Um, you or somebody else would probably agree that we did a great job or not a great job, right? depending on how we did. And not a super high skill bar either for the workforce, right? So I don't need to have a degree or a special training of like, you know, um, programming or whatever that's harder for me to enter. That's right. Yeah. A lot of people can do it. I mean, it, it's surprisingly uh, challenging in that you need a good ear, you need to be a good typist and good judgment, but you're right. It, it's a, it's a broad, it's a broad need for businesses because a lot of people have audio and video that matters and it's a broad skill set that a lot of people know English and can type and those are some of the things that, that led us to it um, as far as the name uh, you know a bit, bit tangent there we started off with a um, kind of a funky name we started off with the name foxtranslate.com mm-hmm. and the reason for that was so our first idea was to translate documents and I thought well I wanted a, a website name that was very clear, not confusing to people. So I wanted the word translate to be in it. I wanted it to, to stand out versus other sites that were out there. And I don't know where I thought of this. No, I t- tell you where I thought of this. At the time, SurveyMonkey and MailChimp right. were like, <laughs> like animal doing well. So like, and task. Animals are cute. <laughs> so I'm like, what animal could I get and stick in the name? And and I wanted Fox is quick. it to be short. <laughs> and um, I mean, somehow... I came across this, this idea of, I had a bunch of ideas, but then you look at like, what can you buy in GoDaddy for $10, $12? And a great creative constraint, by the way. Totally, totally. And and I knew it was temporary, but we did it. And we made a foxtranslate.com. I hired a cartoonist in Indonesia to make a 
cute cartoon fox. It was really, really cute. People would see the website and they, they would smile because it was a very like adorable cartoon fox on our, on our homepage. You can still find it, you know, on the web somewhere. And, um, that was a great, perfect name to get going. So, you know, I, I think I, I kind of tell people when thinking about naming something, um, I, I would spend like no time at the beginning <laughs> thinking about a name because the odds that your business is going to work are like not super high. And so make, make, get the business to work. Once your business works, then you'll know more about what the business really is <laughs> and then think about what the name ought to be. And so, um, we got going in 2010 in 2012, I made it my big priority to figure out what a name would be. And I got some advice from some investors. I read I read books on naming companies. I read books on domain names. Um, I looked for inspiration. And, um, you know, the problem is you come up with a great or name that you think would be awesome for business and you find you can't possibly get it. So, right. so it's, it's really a two-part problem. One is picking a name you love and then figuring out can you get the domain name. Mm-hmm. Um I'm skipping a bunch of steps here, but, uh, well, I actually hired two different domain brokers to go out and sort of buy names because any, um, people have different views on names. Um, I've, from the beginning, I had what I'll call a multi-decade aspiration for the company. I wanted to build a company that creates, you know, many millions of work from home jobs over many decades. So I didn't want the name to be narrowly tied to our first service. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be broad enough to give me uh, room to maneuver. And I also thought that, um, a good name uh, that had some meaning to it would um, create a stronger brand connection to customers. I wanted people to think of us as more than just some commodity service. Uh, the first name I fell in love with that I was not able to get was uh, Circle. I wanted to get the name Circle.com, and I hired a domain broker to find it for me, and she was unable to get it. I, I learned later that I, I think it was Jeremy Allaire had the name for his Bitcoin right. wallet company that launched like a year after <laughs> I was trying to get it because because you know she couldn't find out where it was and she had this she kept getting roadblocks like nobody will call me back. Right, domain brokers usually get a, get a call back. Right. Ultimately, we couldn't get the name, and frankly, I think it's probably better that we didn't because um, that let me spend more time thinking about possible names, and we ended up coming up with the idea for Rev, and we paid a bunch of money to get it. Um, I don't know if I've disclosed, but I'll say it now for fun. We spent four hundred grand on the name. Nice. Um, how do you know how to how do you know how to where to draw the line <laughs> on that? Right. I mean, we didn't have much money. So okay. That was a big. The business was doing pretty well, so we we weren't burning that much money. But that was that was like a huge portion of our of our assets at the time. But I kind of felt like, well, look, if the company's successful, it's a job in the bucket. Right. And if it fails. It's still an asset, by the way. Yeah, you could sell yeah, that, that, that domain again. For sure, for sure. Um, the reason for the name is probably, um, there's, there's sort of two reasons. Uh, one is that when people hear the word rev, they think fast. That, that's kind of the first thing they think mm-hmm. about. They think speed, like rev your engines, accelerate. And the nature of our service is we're really fast mm-hmm. because we do something that is usually done by people in a body shop that, that's slow. Um like a typical customer that wants a 30-minute podcast transcribed prior to us, eight, nine years ago, it would take you 40 hours to get something turned around. More than that, several days, uh, three, four days. And we were, at the beginning, we were probably like 20 hours and you know for that. And today we're like a couple hours. We're, we're so much faster than the alternative that customers, it kind of blows their minds. That's mm-hmm. one of the most common questions. And because people will submit something Friday night at 11 p.m. And then at 1 a.m. they get it back <laughs> on Saturday, 1 a.m. Saturday night or whatever morning, two hours later. And they're shocked. How does this even happen? And if you know how we work, it's kind of easy. Well, people are working. 
Right. Someone, someone's working. Someone's going to be. Out. Someone's working, and it was obvious that as we have more people working, we just get faster. Right. Right. So I thought Rev, Rev was good for that, um, but also you know there's. I thought it had some other kind of hidden meanings. Um, one of my co-founders actually did something sort of clever. This is something that that um, some of your listeners can try if they're trying to think of a name. Um, he went on Mechanical Turk with, and, and he filled his account with like a hundred bucks. And I think I had at the time like ten domain names I was thinking about. So for each domain name, he would pay people uh, some small amount, like fifteen cents, to answer a question. And the question was like, when you see this word, what 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 are the three words that you think of? Okay. And when you hear this word, do you think feel positively or negatively about it? So for like ten dollars per domain name, we got like this tag cloud Test, yeah. <laughs> of like here's here's the here's the words people think about when they hear the when they hear this and it's they were sized based upon frequency. So you could clearly see what words people felt positively about and what, what people thought of when they saw a word. Mm. And so the primary thing people thought of when they saw Rev was um with speed, there was a secondary meaning that wasn't helpful to us, which is like reverend, like a, which was not not related to what we do. But I think maybe the third reason was was, was revolution, mm-hmm. and you know that's what we've always wanted. We've always wanted to um, help accelerate this kind of new industrial revolution towards letting people be their own boss, work from home, and be independent. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we we thought we're going to create a new lifestyle for folks. And we wanted that to come through. My mom uh, works for a company that does a very similar thing called user testing. Sure. And uh, I remember introducing it to her because she was at home and she's like kind of like retired now. She didn't really want to go. She worked in the workforce, but she she didn't want to go back and get a job. She also was bored as hell at home. The kids were gone now. And, um, you know, if, if I told her, look, here's something you could do at home. Pick your hours as much or as little as you want whenever you want in the day. You already have the skills to do this because you're just going to browse a website and click around and tell people, you know, it'll tell you, go try to check out and you, you say if it's confusing to you. You don't have to be good at it. You just say what your actual opinions are. And, uh, look, you're going to make, you know, 10, 15 bucks at a time and that can add up to like, you know, money for your manicure, pedicure and taking us out to dinner or whatever, right? Like this is a little slush fund for you. Um, and she loved it. She loved it. She did it so much that user testing hired her to review other testers and basically help, you know, sort of help build their workforce out. And, um, so I've seen this, like what this means for her to be like, you know, four hours a day, um, picking her own hours, doing this stuff and having her own income and her own autonomy. And it is a game changer. And so I've had specific brainstorms around how do we mobilize the stay at home workforce, the stay at home mom workforce that's out there? How do we, what are some other things? There's user testing. There's rev. Uh, there's, there's gotta be some others because I just think that once you see the lifestyle that that enables, um, it's clear people are going to want that and that that's a game changer for people who are sort of bored and lonely at home and not feeling productive. Um, and, and it's a, it's a pretty big change. Uh, that's a, that's a wonderful example of your mom's story. And I mean, we see so many similar stories in our workforce. Um, one of the things I hear most often when I ask people, Hey, you know, what's like working in rev? They tell me I love the content because they're they watching movies. <laughs> they're listen, they're listen, look, they listen to podcasts. You're interviewing interesting people. So if somebody and the way our our system works is they can favorite a client, so they can put a heart next to your name. Oh, that's cool. So that way, when you have your next podcast, they can check it out. If they think that you do cool podcasts, they're going to think, "Man, I can't wait to hear his podcast." The people on on you know the Apple Podcast app listen to your podcast. They don't get paid to do it. So right. but these people get paid <laughs> to hear your podcast and type it out. And if you think of, I mean, we do educational content, whether it's stuff from universities or stuff from online classes and how to 
use Adobe or online classes on how to cook or how to bake or how to, how to, how to sew, or we have churches doing sermons. There's content for every possible interest. And this is kind of a tough question, but we'll wrap up because it's kind of a fun one. So uh, if you couldn't do Rev, uh, let's pretend alternate universe, you can't be doing Rev right now, but you wanted to um, to, to still work on this mission or, or sort of push, accelerate towards this future where people are working from home with this flexibility and autonomy. Um, what's another what's another idea you've had that you guys you know won't pursue because it's too different or it's too out there what's what's interesting to you that's in this kind of remote world that you're not doing today online education is big in fact i mean a story here and this is a humbling experience um we spent a couple years and you know millions of dollars trying to build a math tutoring service uh and we failed to meet our you know metrics and so we, we shut it down um you know, I was a math tutor when I was in high school, and um, you know, I spent a lot of time you know, driving from one person's house to another. I couldn't tutor until I could get a car, <laughs> and um, maybe we we're early, or maybe we picked the wrong market. But um, you know, education is um, education is an industry that uh, where the government provides most of it, and hasn't seen a ton of innovation. <laughs> and um, you know, I think there's there's a I mean, everybody knows that there's this notion of the flipped classroom that the whole model of read the textbook and listen to a lecture may not be the best model anymore. And um, I think it's clear that online education is is is, uh, is a massive opportunity. There are some big companies. There's a company out of China called VIP Kid mm-hmm. that um, that has a lot of people in the U.S. Um, often, you know, stay-at-home moms or, or, or retired teachers who will work online on video teaching English to Chinese uh, children and that's a pretty big big market mm-hmm. um, and I think if you play it out uh, you know if I want to get the best education for my kid well where's that going to come from uh, there's a lot of things that you get from a teacher in person but if you want some specialized knowledge that you can't get or you don't have the best teacher in your school um, I think it makes a lot of sense <laughs> To, to look at the whole world. And so I think, I think education is an industry where um, remote technology is going to be a really big factor. Love it. Uh, Jason, this was awesome. Uh, where can people find you if they want to, you know, learn more, connect more with you, follow you on Twitter, you know, shout it out. So people who are listening to this can find you. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Jason at Jason Chicola. So you can connect DM me and love to love to hear from folks. Awesome. Thank you very much. Share with